You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the fabulous 54 Below. Before we get started this evening, just a polite reminder, please take this moment to silence your cell phones, and also there is no flash photography, please. Welcome to the 54 Below podcast. I'm Nella Vera, the club's head of marketing. Our guests today are Scott Garnum and Simon Schofield, two members of the musical theater supergroup known as the Barricade Boys. In addition to their many other credits, including roles in Mamma Mia, Wicked, Billy Elliot, Phantom of the Opera, and more, the four amazing leading men of the Barricade Boys have all performed in the West End International Tour or movie adaptation of Les Mis, thus the name. The Barricade Boys literally tore the roof off of 54 Below when they were here last year, for their 54 Below debut. And now they are back with two shows on January 15 and 16. Scott and Simon, welcome to our podcast. Hey, nice to meet you. Hello. We're so excited to have you. I am a Barricade Boys super fan now after seeing your show. I will go anywhere to see you. It was just such an amazing experience. Well, I'd love to ask you for your origin story. So tell us like how you all met, who came up with the idea for the group and the name and all of that. Well, it's a long story, but we've got time, right? Yes, we have time. <laughs> well, I, I was in the West End production of Les Mis, and around that time, the Jersey Boys were getting a lot of attention. They, you know, they were getting booked to go off and do all these shows and different corporate events outside of being in the show itself. And I just thought, you know, there's a big following for Les Mis. You know, it's kind of like the world's longest winning musical. That's kind of how they sell it. And people love that music. And I loved that music. And Simon is one of my best friends. And he had kind of wanted to get into producing. And I'd sort of talked about the idea of producing. So I sort of said, what do you think about this idea? Do you think it's got legs? And at that point, it was called The Boys of the Barricade. And it was more of a concert field and less of a group. And he really liked it. And together, we sat down and we in my old flat in London in the kitchen. And we kind of put a set list together. And we talked about bits in the show. And we made each other laugh. And much of a cry about moments that we thought would be really good. And that's kind of how it was all born. So we booked a theatre in London's West End called the Charing Cross Theatre. Very, very quickly sold out, which we were really delighted with. And we just went for it. We put the show on and eight years later, we've been looking if we've toured all over the world and doing US tours, UK tours. We've been to New Zealand, uh, Dubai, all over Europe. You know, it's just kind of, it's sort of taken over our lives, something we never expected, but we're very, very grateful for. So the two of you started first, and how did you find the other two gentlemen? Well, it's all guys, I guess, that have been in Les Mis, so it is a, a quite a large pool, but we started with mates 
mates who we already know, mates who've been in it. And again, Scott was in it. So he got a concept artwork done. Kieran Brown, who's in our amazing show, he's in it. And a guy called Craig Mather, who is the longest running Marius in the world, he is also in it. So we are all four originals. So we got it from mates, really. And it's one of those privileges where we can tour and work together with mates, performing. It's something, again, Scott said, we never thought we would happen. But we genuinely have the best time on and off the stage. It really is uh, a privilege to be one of the Barricade Boys. That's amazing. I mean, each of you has a unique voice and together you sound incredible. So when you were putting together the group, did you start by choosing the sound or you chose mates or did the sound evolve after you came together? Like, did you say, oh, well, we need a high tenor and we need a baritone or you chose four people that you love and you all figured out the sound together? It's a bit of both really, isn't it? I mean, we're very lucky that we work in an industry where our mates are very good already. So that <laughs> kind of takes out some of the pressure of, you know, casting your friend who maybe isn't, you know, isn't very good. Like your friend, <laughs> your friend Barry, who's like, can I be in the group? Be like, well, not really, Barry. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just, uh, <laughs> it's just really good people that Vinny Lame is. No, I don't know. I think, I think, yes, we wanted to make sure that the sound was particularly good. We always kind of say that we take the work very seriously, but we don't take ourselves very seriously. And I think that comes across in the show as well. We've all got a very similar sense of humour. We have very different voices. Simon is a very, very high, legit tenor who can do kind of your Jersey Boys, that kind of high stuff. I'm more of a legit tenor. Craig is a beautiful high baritone and Kieran's a what you'd call a stereotypical baritone. So those kind of four voices together do create quite a unique sound. And I think a lot of people come and see our show thinking they're going to hear just ballads from musicals. And so then when we do the kind of stuff that we do, which sometimes is rocky and poppy that with a theatrical sound is really exciting and that's something we didn't expect until we sang it for the first time like Bohemian Rhapsody for example which is kind of one of our big hits in the show when we sang that with our voices it was just something very magical about it and you know we've never ever got a response like that before and since it's the one song that no matter when wherever we sing it over the world people kind of go crazy for it oh yeah I lost my mind I have that video on my phone and there's not a week that goes by that I don't play it for myself and for somebody else. Thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> of the entire performance. And I never do that. I don't, I'm not that person who goes to shows and is like, here's my phone. I'm going to, you know, I hate that. But as soon as I heard the opening chords of that song, I lost my mind and I just had my phone up for the whole time. It was so crazy. Your first concert was at Charing Cross Road. You said the theater there. And then from there, what happened? You, so you had the first concert, it was sold out. And then you said, oh, this thing has legs. Did other people book you or how did you proceed from there? Yes, they did, but not for a long time. So, you know, we were really excited after the show because, again, we put this on at the Charing Cross Theatre. And it was an amazing experience. The atmosphere was crazy, like three, four standing ovations. Like, we couldn't believe it. It was amazing. We had it recorded. And we just went, okay, well, that was unbelievable. Can't wait for the phone to ring. And it didn't ring for eight months. And, you know, we, we put some work in. We were trying to get out there, you know. And then we went on a cruise line. And we did one show. And that was it. We were booked up for like 50 dates straight across. And then from that, you know, as Scott says, work creates work. And other people saw us. And then word of mouth got out and... All of a sudden, we were in different theatres and our promoter wanted to pick us up and we were off going doing something here on land. And 
I would say from conception to eight months on, we've never stopped. And that's, um, <laughs> again, we're very lucky on yeah. that one. How do you choose the music? Like, how do you decide on the harmonies and the arrangements? Is there one person or is it a group effort? I mean, it's normally me and Simon that creatively lead the group. But, you know, we've been together such a long time now that it's nice to, we share all our opinions and ideas. And if someone has a really cool idea, then we sort of workshop it maybe and see if it works. But we've got a fantastic musical supervisor called James Doughty, who would you would have seen at 54 Below, played the piano as well. And he's an incredible arranger. He comes up with these amazing arrangements, unique, different styles. That's another thing. You know, when we, when we sing things from Les Mis, for example, we try and do very different things with them. So I Dreamed a Dream is kind of like a pop ballad and One Day More is like an 80s rock ballad and Master of the House is a Michael Bublé swing number. You know, we just try and put our own stamp on it because, A, because if you, you know, the show is 38 years old. So you've, you've heard those songs a million times before. And we want to try and do something unique and different with them. And that was always the idea of the show was that people would come with, with one idea of what they're going to see and then hopefully we could change that and create a fan that would follow us around and see all the different things that we do. And we do constantly evolve the show, you know, even this, the next time we're at 54 below, we've got some new stuff, some old stuff because people loved it and also some new stuff. So that's exciting. It sounds like you're also business people now because you're handling all of the group's affairs. Do you all participate in that side or did you appoint one of you who was particularly good with numbers or business? (laughs) Again, it's me and Scott that kind of lead all that. And we're still learning every single day. You know, it's just never something we were taught when you go to business school. We're two performers that are learning, well, learning the trade, really. But again, eight years, it's going okay. Sounds like you're quite good at it. (laughs) Well, it has changed our lives, hasn't it? Because what we found was that suddenly we were producers and we never kind of really set out to be, I mean, I suppose creative producers to a point, but actual real life producers now and we had to figure out the financial side of things and the UK market is very different to the US and we in theory invested and, and, and put up the money for the whole of our, every UK tour that we do and it has led to me and Simon doing other things you know we produce other shows now we associate produce on different things we were involved in Rose that was just in the West End last year and that did really well for us and Brokeback Mountain was premiered over here with Mike Feist and we also associate producers on that. So it's kind of opened up some really exciting doors for us, that we, which is exciting. You know, we love it. Oh, amazing. I loved Brokeback Mountain. I flew over just to see it. Oh, you did? Oh, great. I was so curious about what that could be. You know, a little afraid to see it. And it was, oh, <laughs> it was really wonderful and beautiful and totally unexpected. So congratulations on that. You know, I love what you just said, because I think so many performers don't have that side. They're not exposed to that side and they end up relying on other people to do all their business. And it's easy to not understand a contract or it's easy to agree to things that perhaps aren't the best thing for you. And I think I love when I hear that artists, you know, are taking control of their careers and, or at least are aware and have an interest in that side. And I know that for you, it was out of necessity, but it's great you know, you're kind of controlling your own destiny, which is such a great, great thing. Let me ask you about Les Mis, because all of you have spent time behind the barricades. What was it like to be part of such a global cultural phenomenon? I mean, for me, it changed my life because I entered Les Mis when I was very, very young. So it's kind of the first thing I ever did. It was in 1993 and I played the little boy Gavroche. So I did it for six months and that was it. I knew from doing Les Mis, that was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. 
And there was never anything along the way that changed that. It was a huge part, including now this shaping my adult life. I, I guess <laughs> Lamia's really is the show that, that oh, I guess it's the show that's changed my life, really, in more ways than one. Never thought of that until <laughs> this. Yeah, strange. And also just to be part of a, a show that is so beloved. It's one thing to make your debut or you know, you're starting in a, in a West End show or a Broadway show, but it's another thing to be part of a mega blockbuster like Lame is that it, people love. Yeah. It never stops. It's constantly evolving. You know, it's, Cameron McIntosh is very, very clever. We're going on for what, 30, 30 odd years now in the West End? 38 years. You know, they've done a movie of it, they've done series of it, they're just about to do a world arena tour. And for us to be a little part of that in our own ways and, you know, representing Lamey's brand as the Barricade Boys is something we don't take lightly, really. It's, yeah. For us, it's, you know, the show. It's phenomenal. So over time, you guys have been joined by some incredible guest stars. How did the idea to add guest stars come about and how did you choose them? Do you know what? It was purely a marketing decision originally. We got asked if we would do the first Christmas residency at Angelo Rose's newest theatre, a place called The Other Palace. And we were going to be the first show that was going to do more than kind of like one night. There's lots of one-nighters. And we were going to be there for three weeks solid leading up to Christmas. And me and Simon, you know, discussed things and said, some people know who we are. Not everyone knows who we are. People need to take a punt on our show. What's a good way of doing that? And we thought, well, if we could somehow get a special guest every night that was kind of known within the West End or from TV and different things, it kind of means that a whole fan base that weren't aware of us might suddenly be aware of us, you know. So that's what we did. We, we sort of set about trying to secure a guest every night and we managed it, luckily. And it worked brilliantly. You know, people who hadn't heard of us came to watch us and they've been fans since, which is nice. And, and it's something we've tried to do ever since, really. I mean, we don't always do it. I mean, like we're coming back to 54 Below and we, we had Rachel Tucker last time. But this time we want to just come and present our show, which is also equally as exciting. But we know these people, they're friends of ours. We've done musicals with them over the years and some people have more success than others and different fame and different things. But they're all these people, if they're nice people, tend not to change. And people like Rachel, you know, I said, oh, would you come and sing a few songs at Fit Fall Below? And she jumped at the chance. It's great that people will do that for us and we in turn would do that for them. Well, now I can imagine it's such a great honor to be asked to join you. So well, it's like so. kind of, you know, now that you've had so much success, your collective theatrical credits include so many starring roles in incredible shows. Personally, for each of the two of you, what have been your favorite roles to play and why? Shall I go? <laughs> you go, you go. <laughs> for me, I was looking to do the original UK tour of Billy Elliot, and I got to play Tony Elliot, the brother to Billy. And Sometimes in musical theatre, it's very rare to get a role that requires that level of acting, should I say? And I loved every second of it. It was just one of those parts that I, I really wanted to get it. I put a lot of work into the audition, you know, and I very rarely have had this, but I left the room thinking, I think I've got this. It was like round one, you know, and I, th I think I've got this. And I came back and I did another 10 minutes in the room and, and, then, and I got the offer. So I knew, I knew that whatever I'd done was right. And it was one of those parts that just felt right to me. I was on that show for 20 months. I was in a complete awe of the little boys that played Billy because, my God, do they work hard. And I loved it. It felt very special. We took the show back to Sunderland where it was originally filmed. You could hear in the audience people, actual miners, you know, who lost their jobs crying at the story and at the portrayal. And 
me and a, an actor called Martin Walsh who played my dad, you know, we really felt a sense of responsibility with that show of telling that story really well. Because on one hand, it's about a little boy that, you know, wants to dance and has got this natural ability. And on the other hand, it's about the crumbling of a community. And yeah, I just, just felt very special. So for me, it'd be Tony Elliott and Billy Elliott. So I also just finished a film, by the way. I have to push this in. It was the lead role in a Netflix number 10. Was it top 10 in how many countries? 47. 46, but say 47, it's fine. <laughs> 46, it's called Christmas on Mistletoe Farm. If you put it into Netflix, he'll come up, he's the face, he's the lead, he's right there. So we're all very proud what? of him for that. It's oh, my oh God. thank you. Very kind. Yes, I, I was. It's going it on my queue immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's good fun. I was out of the country for Christmas. I didn't see any of the Christmas films, so I'm very behind right now. Well, I'm going to catch up, but I was in Mexico for two weeks and I we couldn't access the Netflix in Mexico for some reason. Oh, nice. So it was well, it's, it's on there for the next 15 years, so you have time. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you, Simon? Oh, my favorite role. My favorite role, I think it's less emotional than Scott's, but it was a show I always wanted to do since I was four. And I, I was lucky enough to have played Joseph in Joseph and the Amazing Technical Dream Coat. And I loved it because it was something I'd, I'd always wanted to do. So to be able to, to do it as an adult was fantastic. I loved every minute, the same as Scott did, living the dream, literally. No, I loved it. Yeah. Oh, how fun. How fun. Billy Elliot, I saw it in Barcelona a couple of years ago. Wow. And I went, even though I've seen it numerous times in London and here in America, I just wanted to see if the story would read in Spanish culture because it it is so specific to sort of this tale of what was happening in this community and people loved it. I think that story is universal yeah. worldwide, regardless of even so specific to that era in England, but it was, it was fantastic. And the kids, I don't know where they got these kids, but they were amazing. It's crazy. On my version, you know, they had Billy skills. So even before we started rehearsal, they have about six months of hardcore training every yeah. single day and school. You know, they've got tutors working with them just to get them up to speed to start rehearsals with us, you know, which was then yeah. 12 weeks. Like it's a massive undertaking. Well, one of the things that we always say at 54 Below is that every night there's talent on our stage, even if they're not famous, even if they haven't booked a Broadway show yet. And we're like, these people are amazing. Every single night for 365 days, there's performers that have yet to be discovered or, you know, there's so much talent in the world. And it's partly it's a matter of luck, but it's also kind of what you did, taking your fate into your own hands and pushing through and having a plan and being smart about business and grabbing the opportunities when they're there. And obviously you have to have the talent too, but it's incredible to me just like every night. I'm like, why isn't that person a star? Yeah. Um, so, you know, even in Spain and Barcelona, there were amazing Billy Elliot's twirling around. So yeah, it was great. So speaking of your incredible careers, do you have any moments on stage, either with the Barricade Boys or with any other show that are particularly memorable, that are really close to your heart? I think a big one for me, it would go back to Les Mis. I was looking to be in the 25th anniversary production. And as part of that, we performed Les Mis at the O2 Arena in London. So we performed, oh. I think, 19,000 people. And that was just, it was just incredible. Nothing can prepare you for that moment when we first came out, you know, because I didn't come on until at the end of the day, you know, the day older. That was my first entrance. And you sort of come over the, you know, what they call the VOMs. They're called VOMs, I think. It's like kind of mm -hmm. like these, you know, these passerelles at the side. And all of a sudden, you, you just hit by this amount of people that are watching the show. And 
that was really magical. And, and Alfie Bow played Jean Valjean. And when he sang Bring Him Home, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. It was just very, very magical, amazing night of, of theatre, you know, and to be a part of that and see what it meant to everybody. And yeah, I feel very lucky. Simon, do you have a favourite memory? Yeah, again, it would be boring, isn't it? It would be good to, to do another show that I've already said. But Joseph, there's a moment in it where it's meant to be a star vehicle, you know, it's meant to be a name. And then he turns around over his shoulder and everyone sees the name and he sings it, you know, any dream will do. Everyone claps. Well, I'm not a name, you know, but I still had to do the same choreography that, that the name would do. So I turned my shoulder and there's the audience, you know. And having watched that, and I was in it as a kid. Again, I, I did quite a lot as a, as a child actor. And I'd seen so many people play that part of Joseph. And then it was me. And so, again, turning my shoulder, doing the same choreography that countless big names have done was a great, great moment. Yeah, I loved it. So you've also traveled all over the world with your concerts. Are there any specific places that have a special place in your heart? Oh, that's tough, isn't it? I think America, it's got to be yeah. I mean, 54 Below, no, we're joking aside, was one of our highlights of 2023. Like, it really was. It was it's someone we'd always wanted to perform. It's one of the highlights of our career, really. I mean, it was, like Simon said, we used to watch videos of Broadway performers we've loved and admired over the years, you know, and that iconic 54 setting. And there we were. You know, it was like, wow. I think Kieran, who isn't with us, would say that, that was one of his highlights of his career, 54 Below. Oh, that's so gratifying to hear. We never know, you know, we put all our stuff out on YouTube and we stream our shows and never know if anybody's watching. (laughs) Well, they are, trust me. Over in the UK, people are watching for sure. Oh, that's so fun. We love that. You've also played in different type of venues from large arenas to tiny spaces. Do you have a house size you prefer? or How do you tailor the show for those different houses? Great question. What do you prefer, Scott, large or small? I like them for different reasons. I love the intimacy of a room like 54 Below, for example, because I like talking to an audience and I like them learning something about us. And I like that when we finish the show, I feel like this is going to sound a bit pretentious, but we've made friends. We've shared a moment together in that room. And I think that's really exciting. But equally, we, you know, we played the Adelphi Theatre in the West End last year, where Back to the Future is currently on, on its dark day. And, and that was amazing. You know, to go out to a sold-out West End theatre and do that version of the show is also equally exciting because there's something kind of grand and spectacular about it. So I don't know. I don't know if I could pick one that I love. I like them for very, very different reasons, but they're both great. I think I prefer a larger crowd because I get less nervous, honestly. With a smaller crowd such as 54 Below, you can see everybody's face. They are just there, you know, and yeah. there's something more nerve-wracking about seeing 2,500 or, Scott said, 19,000 people in the black it doesn't really matter then. You know, it's the same show. So for me, I do think I prefer the larger one. I get less nervous, which is so strange. (laughs) That makes so much sense. We've had, you know, some big stars that we love and tried to get to come to play 54 Below. And one in particular would be amazing, but he just said, "I, I can't be that close to the audience. You know, he only plays larger for the very reason. He just gets too distracted or you know, people are right there and forces you to engage with them. And it is, it is, it's tough. I mean, cabaret is an art that is extremely tough and people I think don't realize, especially people who are only used to seeing Broadway shows, how much the performers have to put themselves out there in a small space. 
where people are expecting a connection and intimacy, not just for you to sing. And I think you guys did that brilliantly last year. You know, you were able to give us these show stopping numbers, but you also really connected with the audience, which is, I think why, and I think you do that even in a large space, which is why the audience response is so incredible. I mean, at the end of your shows, the audience just, you know, they're stunned, they're exhilarated, they're cheering. And that's just not just because you have great voices and did great harmonies, you know, it has to do with the four of you being able to connect with that audience, regardless of the size. So. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Do you have any backstage rituals that you do before a show or are you suspicious about anything? I mean, Simon practically struggles to get dressed for the show, let alone rituals. I say, I say, Simon, are you warm? And he goes, hmm, yeah. That's it. He's good to go. Um, I think I, I stress more. I, I probably stress more than you, don't I? I'm a bit more like, okay, I need to get ready. You're dressed first. I'm always dressed first. I hate the idea of rushing. You know, I want to like a good time to get myself ready and focused. And yeah. the opposite. No, someone's getting out of the shower at beginners. But like, Simon, <laughs> put your suit on. We've got to go. I'm exactly oh, like that. I like to be prepared, but it's amazing to me. Sometimes we're backstage at a Broadway show and you'll just see half the cast. are like having a cigarette in the alley or they're just chatting and they're like, oh, I got to go on. And they like on immediately and they're in character. Yeah, I can't. I, hit the note. I, I can't do it. Out. I mean, on, on the same note, I remember doing Billy Elliot, like we'd finished the show, which was quite a full on dance happy moment. Previous to that, I'd had like two hours of just anger and frustration and depression. And so sometimes I'd go into my dressing room, I'd just sit there, you know, for like 20 minutes, just trying to snap out of it because it's quite a lot to go for the eight shows a week for 20 months. I was worried I was going to It's very different to Barricade Boys, isn't it? It's very different to Barricade Boys. What do you have planned for the Barricade Boys? What's your next steps or what's in the future? What do you hope will happen? Oh, double-edged question, really. I mean, we are two years now off, well, God, one year off 10-year anniversary tour. So next year, 2025, will be a big year for us. We've been doing another big concert in, in London and hopefully doing a much more significant tour around the UK as our 10th anniversary tour. But this year, we're touring a lot in the US, Midwest and oh, where else did we go? I mean, Midwest, North Carolina. We've done an amazing tour uh, this year. Last year, gosh, I... It's really getting me this 23 to 324. Last year we toured the US and we had the best time from New Orleans, Nashville, Memphis, and it's places we've never seen before. So it's so exciting, yeah. you know. It's very cool. Yeah. And all of America is so different. Oh, gosh. So we are honestly having the best time in your country. <laughs> it's the best. It's incredibly different. And I think, yeah, you know, people think they come over and they think America is either cowboys or new york <laughs> and there's just so much to it and politically it's very different in different states and cities even within the same state but well, i think what everybody appreciates is music and art and that's the power of bringing people together regardless of how different you are there's broadway fans everywhere and thanks to the internet and thanks to videos and people are now fans of people even very obscure musicians, you know, have huge fan bases if you know how to use the internet. So that's been great. 
following from what, what you said before and what Simon said, you know, I think for us as well, because it's nearly our 10 year anniversary and we've kind of managed the group ourselves, me and Simon, you know, this whole time. There is an element of kind of thinking, do we look for a bigger representation now? Somebody that can kind of maybe take it to another level or will that lose some ownership from us? So there is a kind of question there, you know, particularly America, it's such a great, huge, big place and we'd love more people to see what we do. And maybe that's a discussion that we need to have at some point, whereas do we look for someone else to kind of represent us for moving forward into its next chapter? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, we have, there are so many performing arts centers that need the touring shows. I mean, there's such a great industry here for different shows that go to large spaces and universities and presenting houses and theaters that need a show to fill out their season. So yeah, I think you guys can conquer America, America, Canada, (laughs) you know, all of it, (laughs) all of North America. Well, we are so excited to have you back. We're excited that you decided to come back you know, after your smashing debut. We're so grateful that you're back. And so many people who saw you last year have bought tickets and are excited to come back and have told me that they're definitely coming. So, and hopefully you'll have new fans as well. So thank you so much for your time today. And it was so great to meet you. I look forward to meeting you in person. And we're looking forward to having you back January 15 and 16 at 7 p.m., Can you remind everybody who's listening what your social handles are so that people can follow you? They're really easy. It's pretty much on any social platform, we are just Barricade Boys. So Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. I'm rubbish at this, but, you know, YouTube. (laughs) All the ones that the kids know, we're Barricade Boys. Fantastic. So people listening at home, do not miss the show. It was my favorite show last year. Scott and Simon, you guys are awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Yay, we can't wait. Thank you. You've been listening to the 54 Below podcast, part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. To find out more about our upcoming shows, visit us at 54below.org. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.